0: Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Isaiah chapter 61. We've been looking at this passage through the month of September. And this morning I'm actually adding verse 4, so we'll read verses 1 through 4. And then I'm going to flip over and look at Acts chapter 1 and read verses 6 through 8. First of all, from Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 4. This is God's word. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound That he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities. The devastations of many generations. And then from Acts chapter 1 verses 6 through 8. So when they had come together they asked him. Lord will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. I grew up in northwestern Pennsylvania in the midst of the Allegheny National Forest. And when I was in high school, one of the jobs that I had was working for the National Forest Service, good job, working out in the woods all day long. And one of our common tasks was to go out into the middle of the forest to find the clear cuts. And our job was to put up what we called deer fence, a plastic fence, around the clear cut to keep the deer out until the clear-cut had had opportunity to grow and develop. Now, if you're not familiar with the term clear-cutting, it's kind of a controversial practice these days. But the intent of it was to take an unhealthy forest and by cutting down all of the trees, basically give it an opportunity to be transformed into a much healthier forest, and especially up in That part of the state, there's a lot of evergreens, and so with a lot of evergreen trees, you get a lot of dark cover of the ground. You don't get a lot of undergrowth, and so there's not a lot of food for the wildlife. And so this was one way of managing the forest to try to maybe take away too many of one kind of tree and allow another kind of tree to develop and to allow some undergrowth to develop for the wildlife. Again, it's not my intent to try to defend that as a practice. That's just what we did. We would go around and put up the deer fence to keep the, the growth protected during the early stages of the clear cut. Well, I was thinking about clear cutting this week uh, because I was interested. I was thinking about the beginning of the book of Isaiah and how in that, those first few chapters, he's talking about God's judgment upon the wickedness upon the earth. And there's actually a place where it compares God's judgment upon wickedness to clear-cutting. If you don't believe me, flip back to Isaiah chapter 10. In Isaiah 10, the end of chapter 10, in a passage that's talking about God's judgment, he's already talked about God's judgment upon Israel, his people, and here he's talking about God's judgment on His en- on the enemies of Israel the enemies of God. And at the end of chapter 10, this is what it says. Verse 33. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. Clear-cutting as an imagery of God's justice and judgment being poured out on the earth. And we've seen it over and over again where God will cut down nations. Even Israel, his own people, when they turn in idolatry and wickedness from him. But I bring that up to point out to you again, and we've looked at this chapter many times, the very next verse is the first verse of chapter 11. Because that's the context to the chapter that we've been looking at repeatedly in chapter 11, which is a messianic passage. It's a passage of prophecy written 700 years before Christ was born about Jesus Christ. And this is the prophecy beginning in verse 1 of chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. We've looked at this before. The tree has been cut down. There's only a stump left. But by the grace of God, from that stump is going to grow a shoot of new growth, which will produce a great tree. And that shoot, it says, is from the stump of Jesse, who is the father of David. So it's pointing to the son of David, the Messiah, the anointed one who would be king over God's kingdom forever. From this chopped down tree would grow a great tree which would represent the kingdom of the eternal king, the one prophesied in Scripture. And then the description of that great Messiah is given beginning in verse 2, and then it moves into a description of his kingdom. So let me just take a moment to read those verses for you. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den." They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Prophecy of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the righteous king who would reign over a just kingdom, a kingdom of peace. A kingdom that has become everything that the Garden of Eden was intended to be. A kingdom full of righteousness and peace between God and man and between man and man. We've been studying Isaiah 61, which is also a prophetic scripture that points to this Messiah. And it actually gives the words of the Messiah. We talked about how in Isaiah 53, there's that great passage that's written again, 700 years before the crucifixion, but describes the crucifixion in great detail, how this suffering servant, this Messiah, died for the sins of God's people. All the iniquities of God's people were placed upon him and he bore the wrath of God for their sins and was raised again for their justification. That's what Isaiah 53 is about. And based upon that, then, the Messiah speaks here in Isaiah 61. And he basically gives his job description. He gives his mission statement. And then, as we said, Jesus proved that we're interpreting this correctly because in his very first sermon, when he went back to his hometown of Nazareth, he stood up in the synagogue and he read this very passage from Isaiah 61. And then he said to the people there, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your sight. It's the same thing he meant when he said the kingdom is at hand. I have come to establish this kingdom. The shoot from the stump of Jesse is growing. The kingdom is here and it's going to grow. And it's going to grow according to that great vision in Isaiah 11. Till the whole earth is full of the knowledge and the glory of the Lord. And so, in a sense, that's what the kingdom work is today. Christ has established the kingdom. And in a very real sense, to use the language and to borrow the metaphor from Isaiah 61. What's happening is the spiritual reforestation of creation. As the Lord raises up oaks of righteousness as we become like trees planted by water, as we have roots growing deep into the Word of God, and as we grow up spiritually strong and healthy and bear fruit of obedience and service and worship, we become the fulfillment of this kingdom. As Tom mentioned a couple of times, the kingdom of God is in our midst As this great work of grace is going on among us. And I purposely included verse 4 this week. We hadn't looked at verse 4 before. But this is the effect. As the kingdom is established among the people of God. As they become great oaks of righteousness. What's the effect? And look at verse 4 again. They. These oaks of righteousness shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. This world is broken. It's broken by our sins. And the only hope for this fallen, spiritually dark, broken world, the only hope is this kingdom That's established by the grace that's in Jesus Christ. Now it's interesting, Isaiah, 700 years before Christ, gave these words of prophecy to the people of God in the state when they were the stump. They were the cut down tree. They were under God's judgment. They were about to be taken away into Babylon, into captivity, at the hands of their enemies to suffer for a couple of generations And these words were meant to be the light at the end of that very long and dark tunnel, something to hold on to through that captivity. And I'm sure that as the people in Isaiah's time heard these words, they thought about going back to Jerusalem and rebuilding the city walls and rebuilding the city and rebuilding this glorious temple. And once again, becoming the great kingdom and and putting David's son back on the throne and, and becoming the great kingdom over all the world. I'm sure that's what they saw. But they didn't understand that that was far too little of a vision for the work of this Messiah. And it never was fulfilled in Old Testament Israel. When Israel went back to Jerusalem, it was a pitiful shadow of what it had been in the great and glorious days of David and Solomon. Remember that when they built the second temple after the exile, when they built that second temple, the older people wept. It was so inferior to Solomon's temple. And we know from that point on that political Israel, the ethnic Israel, the Israel that was in the the Palestine of that time was never a great kingdom again. It was always under the iron boot of some world empire, whether it be the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans. No, the fulfillment of Isaiah 61 is not in the nation of Israel of the Old Testament. The fulfillment of Isaiah 61 is in the church of Jesus Christ as we are the kingdom of God, the visible kingdom of God in the world. We're not the entire kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is anywhere where Christ is Lord and that's everywhere. But we are the visible manifestation of the kingdom of God. What does the kingdom of God look like? The kingdom of God looks like God's people loving God and loving each other. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. And it is being restored. And I hope that according to the pattern of the Lord's Prayer, you are regularly praying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come, your will be done. It's happening as we speak. How does it come? How does the kingdom come? What's the means of that restoration? We've already seen this. We looked at it a couple weeks ago. The power, the engine that drives the kingdom of God. The sword that fights off the powers of darkness to establish the kingdom of God is the word of God. We saw that in Isaiah 61. It's the proclamation of the word of the Messiah that brings the kingdom into existence. The Messiah is anointed by God to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of God's judgment. Remember what we read back in Isaiah 11, in that great prophecy of the kingdom, it said in verse 4, He, the Messiah, shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And it makes me think of that great vision In the book of Revelation, where the Apostle John was given this this fantastic view of the risen, glorified Christ. And in that vision of the Christ, remember what it said. It said, from his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. And that sword has been given to us to wield in this spiritual battle that we fight day in and day out. In Ephesians 6, when the Apostle Paul lists our spiritual armor, he only gives us one weapon there. And the weapon is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You see, there are a lot of people out there in the world that like to scare unbelievers by saying that the church is going to go around putting on a new crusade and pulling out swords and guns and force people to accept Christ at the, at the tip of a sword. We have no means of physical force. The power of the kingdom of God is the word of God. It's the only power we have. It's the only power that we need to bring the kingdom into visible existence in our midst. See, this is how it's meant to happen, is that we become rooted deep in the word of God. And as we are rooted deep in the word of God... Especially in the word of the gospel, who Jesus is and why He came and how He came to save us. As we're rooted deep in the word of God, then we become spiritually healthy. As we become spiritually healthy and mature and stable, we begin to bear fruit. Fruit of obedience, fruit of worship, fruit of service to the world. And as we bear fruit and as we grow, then there is a transformation that takes place in the world around us in our spheres of influence, whether it's in the home or whether it's in the school or whether it's in our community, whether it's in the workplace, we begin to have an influence. And the effect, as it's listed here in Isaiah 61, verse four, is that the ruins are built up. Ruined cities are repaired and the devastations of many generations are repaired. I was really struck by that phrase as I studied it this week, that The ruins, of the the, the devastations of many generations being repaired. Isn't that how sin works? We're born into this world as sinners. But we also are born into a fallen world where we're carrying the burdens of the sins of generations that came before us. And I read study after study that talks about how children of alcoholics tend to become addicted to alcohol, and how children that are abused tend to become abusers when they get older. We bear the damages of the devastations of former generations. I know in my own life as a young man, anger was my big issue. I couldn't control my anger. And some of that I bore as a burden for my own father. And I was terrified of what I would do to my own children when I became a parent. But I'm so glad to see the grace of God at work in me and in work in my family to where I can look at my children and say, the cycle is being broken. It's being broken through the power of the gospel. It's being broken through the power of the word. The devastations of former generations don't have to be passed on, but the only hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ in the word of God. That's the only hope for this world. We're in an election season where we're hearing all kinds of promises about hope and change and transformation. But we know that the only hope for change and transformation is found in the kingdom of God, where the word of God is bearing fruit. It begins in the home. I I love the story of Timothy. Timothy was a young pastor in the early church. But Paul and Timothy, in that relationship, you see how this discipleship process works. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And in Timothy's life, you see how it worked because it says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says to Timothy, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. You see, that's the transformation. Just as the devastations of former generations can be passed on, so can the blessings of the gospel and the blessings of the kingdom. It was Timothy's grandmother first and then Timothy's mother, and now Timothy has been the recipient of this discipleship work of the kingdom. He's been taught the things of the word of God. And Paul actually goes on in 2 Timothy chapter 3 to talk about that process at work in Timothy's life. He says in verse 14, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. It begins in the home. There is no more important discipleship work in the world than training your children in the Word of God. No more important discipleship work in the Word. That's the heart of our mission. The kingdom is meant to grow primarily through godly Christian parents teaching their children the Word of God. And think about how it multiplies. I have five kids. If all my five kids grow up and establish Bible-based, gospel-centered, Christ-honoring homes, think about how my wife and I have multiplied our impact on the world just through being obedient to the command to disciple our own children. But it goes beyond that. It goes to the church. The focus of the ministry of the church needs to be upon discipleship. Just making disciples who are able to make other disciples. That's got to be the focus of the church. There's so many things that we do in the life of the church. But that's always got to be the heart of it. Everything's got to come back to that. Are we making disciples who are able to make other disciples? That's what the mission statement that we've been given from our Lord is all about. Paul said to Timothy, again, Paul said to Timothy, chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's the command. That's the mission statement. Learn the scriptures. Pass the scriptures on to others. Bring the truth of the Word of God to bear on the lives of other people, whether it be through teaching, whether it be through example, whether it be through any means of supporting those who do that. Whatever means, be involved in making disciples. And the kingdom will grow exponentially. As we're involved in small group Bible studies, as we're involved in Sunday school classes, as we're involved in in uh, men's groups and women's groups, Youth ministry, by whatever means, make disciples because that's our core mission. And then it'll have an impact on the community. As families make up the church, as the church makes up the visible representation of the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is in the midst of State College Pennsylvania, State College Pennsylvania will be changed as you go to work and live out under the lordship of Christ as you go to school and live out your life under the Lordship of Christ, as you go into the marketplace, into the mall, into the grocery store, and live out your life according to the word of God under the Lordship of Christ, this community will be transformed. That's what Isaiah 61.4 is talking about. Grassroots righteousness. It doesn't come from the top down. It doesn't come through legislature. It doesn't come through elected officials. It doesn't come through political action. It comes through grassroots righteousness as the kingdom of God spreads through the church into the community. And that's the hope. How big is the job? Let me take you back to Isaiah 61, verse 11. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. This work of making disciples is to go on until all nations have been reached, until the kingdom of God has a visible representation of itself in the church of Jesus Christ, in every people group, in every tribe, in every language. In Isaiah chapter 11, again, going back to that vision of the messianic kingdom in verse 9, it says, The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's why I pointed you to Acts 1. Because in Acts 1 is where Christ basically sends forth his church to go complete this work of making disciples to the ends of the earth. And it's during the 40 days between Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection, between that that great event and his ascension to the right hand of God in heaven, during those 40 days, it was one of the most intense discipleship training programs you've ever seen in the church. And as he was training them about the kingdom of God, it says in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, he presented himself to them alive after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And during one of those sessions... His disciples asked him, Lord, will it you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Is it all going to happen now, Lord? Are we going to get to see it in our lifetime? And he says, no, leave the schedule to God. Let the Father set the time schedule. You worry about being faithful to the mission. He knows we're all clock watchers. You know, if we know it's going to happen, I'm a procrastinator. If I knew it was going to happen 20 years from now, I'd kind of sit back and relax until 19 years have passed and then I get really get busy. You know, God doesn't want us to know when the when we're going to punch the clock to be finished. He says, focus on the mission. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that's what the book of Acts is about. As the kingdom of God in the visible church, through the preaching of the word, the preaching about the crucified and risen Jesus Christ, as that preaching went out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, it went out. Eventually, by the time you get to the end of the book of Acts, Paul is sitting in Rome right under the nose of the emperor over the known civilized world, preaching the gospel. And from there, it would begin to reach the four corners of the earth. Matter of fact, I don't know if you ever noticed the last two verses in the book of Acts. Listen to what it says. Paul lived there two whole years in Rome at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. He's faithful to the mission. And that mission has been handed down to us in our generation in this place. As you look at our new vision statement that the leadership came up with for the church, it ends with the idea of branching out. That as we become strong and spiritually healthy, making disciples, bearing fruit, it's our desire to see this disciple making ministry branch out and spread and continue the work that was begun in the book of Acts. When I arrived at Oakwood, I had a number of people come to me and say, you know, you're going to get frustrated in ministry here. People don't stick around very long. You know, you pour your life into them for three four or five six years and then they go off and they leave and say goodbye and it's really painful and it gets really discouraging and I you know I understood that it's hard to say goodbye to people you love and that you pour your life into but as I heard more and more of these warnings and heard about how hard ministry here is because of that I said wait a minute we're looking at this wrong if our mission is to make disciples, that are going to go out and have an impact on the world, what better place to do that than in State College, Pennsylvania? Because we have people coming in here for three, four, five, six years at a time. We pour our lives into them. We give them the Word of God. We train them in the Scriptures. And then we send them out. And just think about how far-reaching the branches are of the tree that is Oakwood Presbyterian Church. We've got disciples, that we people that we have discipled, that are ministering all over this country and all over this world. That was a great time for this message with Tim and Janilyn leaving. This is their last Sunday with us. We're sending them out. Yes, we're going to weep. Yes, we're sorry to see them go. We're going to miss them. It hurts. But we're going to rejoice because we're sending them out. They're needed in South Carolina. The South is a dark place. <laughs> Spoken like a true Yankee. <laughs> we're sending them out as missionaries. Sending them out to make disciples where they're needed. And it was so gratifying to me, who I haven't known them very long, to have them share. I was talking to them last week about their departure. And they said that, that you know, I think it was Tim who said, almost everything I know about the Bible I've learned since I've been at Oakwood. Janelyn said, almost everything I know about solid reform theology I've learned since I've been at Oakwood. We're sending them out ready to go out and make a difference. And that's success. That's growth. That's ministry. That's what we're here for. There are 5,200 international students on the campus of Pennsylvania State University. 5,200 international students. These are people who are going to go back to their foreign countries and be movers and shakers and leaders. And as many of them as we can reach with the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can have an impact in the very center of the power-broking places of the world. It's important what we're doing here. It's important that we stay focused on the mission. The mission is to make disciples, train people in the word of God, get involved in each other. Yes, pour our lives into each other's lives, even if it's only for a few years. Because the reward is eternal. It's eternal. And part of that sending out is that we're hoping we can send out groups of disciples, that the Lord is going to bless this ministry so much that not only are we going to send out couples and individuals to other parts of the world, we're going to send out groups of disciples to other parts of Center County, other parts of central Pennsylvania, where we can actually start planting churches because we can do a lot more with 20 churches of 100 or 100 churches of 20 than we could with one church of 2,000. So that's what we'd like to do. Send out groups of disciples to make disciples throughout central Pennsylvania. What's the goal of all this? That's the mission. Don't ever confuse mission with goal. What's the goal of all this? The final product of the process, according to what we've been studying these last few weeks, is that God's people be given the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. There's the purpose. There's the goal that God would be glorified, not man. The whole purpose of the process is to see people worshiping Jesus Christ as the risen Lord and King, the eternal King of the only real kingdom. John Piper says this, Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. By God's grace, we long to become oaks of righteousness, growing roots deep. In God's word, bearing fruit of God-centered holiness and worship and branching out with gospel-centered witness and service to Penn, to State College, Penn State University, Central Pennsylvania, and the world. And the core of that mission is making disciples who are able to make disciples. That's how the kingdom will grow. Let's pray. Father, the kind of things we've talked about are far beyond us but all things are possible in Christ Jesus, our Lord. His word is powerful. It has changed us. Enable us, Lord, to take the word to others that they might be changed as well. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.